Carlos Sainz becomes the first non-Red Bull racing driver to win a Grand Prix in 2023 in a thrilling Singapore duel. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and this is Round 15, the Singapore Grand Prix. Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing have set new records for domination this year, but the quest for the perfect season has been ended at the hands of Ferrari and Carlos Sainz. Sainz took pole from George Russell and Charles Leclerc and controlled the pace of the race in classic Singapore style, as slow as he dared, keeping his tyres alive and bunching up the pack. But Mercedes sniffed a chance for a second stop late in the race and put on a thrilling chase that took the battle for the lead down to the last lap. Or just about in George Russell's case, whose night ended in the barriers after a momentary lapse of concentration. It was a famous victory for Sainz, but what happened to Verstappen? Qualified 11th, finished 5th, this wasn't the Dutchman we've come to know this season. To help explain where Red Bull Racing's weekend went so badly wrong, I'm joined by ESPN F1 editor Lawrence Edmondson. Lawrence, how are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I'm glad that you've chosen me for the one race this year so far <laughs> that Red Bull didn't win. And there's yeah, I mean, there's plenty to talk about. It was it was an exciting one. Um, yeah, not least talk about uh, why Red Bull weren't there, but I'm sure we'll get into it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you decide the flow of the podcast and I'll do my best to answer your questions. <laughs> Feel free to interrupt at any time. You know, it is a, it's an equal partnership, I like to think of it as. Let's start with Singapore itself because this is not the first time we've seen unusual results for pretty dominant cars in Singapore. We will get to exactly what happened to Red Bull a little bit later, but I really just want to start with the track. We know it's obviously very physically challenging for drivers. Anyone who's been to Singapore knows it's really hot and very humid and they can't wear shorts and t-shirts when they're driving. What makes it such a challenging track from the teams and cars perspective though? And why is it that we tend to to see unusual things happen here? Yeah, it is an unusual track. Um, I think obviously it's a street circuit. That, that, that factors into uh, any street circuit. You have a lot more bumps and uh, uneven surfaces, which with these cars especially means finding the right ride height uh, to maximise the performance of the underfloor aerodynamics is tricky. It's tricky to, uh, to find that balance. Um, but on top of that, the, the corners are mainly 90 degree corners. And it's interesting to see how that works on different cars. Like some cars seem, uh, it seems to kind of mask some of their weaknesses because uh, they're not having to go through these long radius corners, the type that we're going to see in Suzuka uh, this weekend. And instead, you've got this kind of, you know, almost very quick, uh, sharp change of direction. Uh, and um, yeah, and then, of course, you need a car that's uh, fairly good on braking and you need to look after uh, the tyres. Probably less so now that um, or this year uh, with, with the change layout, uh, probably less hard on tyres, certainly over a qualifying lap, the tyres at the end of a qualifying lap of the old layout were really, really struggling. Whereas now I think there's, um, yeah, it's a slightly easier uh, final sector, but it's, it's still it's still a challenge. And I, I think even the teams, even the teams don't fully understand sometimes why performance can just go missing here. Uh, because of course uh, it happens to Red Bull this weekend, but yeah, we didn't have to look back very far. And this used to be a bit of a bogey track for Mercedes as well. Um, you know, in years when they had a dominant, dominant car, they'd come to Singapore and just really struggled to perform. So um, that's the best I can answer. I don't know, Michael, <laughs> what, what have you got? Well, I, I'm disappointed we no longer talk about 
is that I think the Anderson Bridge... Remember there was a point in time where teams were saying when you drive over that bridge, your gearbox could just stop working. <laughs> the electronics would fail because of some massive power line that was underneath the bridge. I don't know if they've removed the power line or what, but I'm disappointed that's no longer a Mario Kart-esque random <laughs> element that every other driver who crosses the bridge might suddenly have to retire from the race. Uh, but I think, I mean, all of those points, of course, are, are, are very much spotter, and it's sort of like a very particular street circuit in that way. Even Monaco has, it feels like, more variety of corners than Singapore does, weirdly, and that kind of unusually makes it more difficult in particular. You can We've talked about, we will talk about Red Bull later, but that's obviously the headline. Ferrari could say the opposite, though, couldn't you? Because even Ferrari arrived at this race sort of talking about how Probably wasn't going to be a strong one. On paper, you wouldn't have thought it would be. High downforce tracks don't seem to be where that car is is working very well. And of course, we've just come from Monza, completely the opposite circuit, where Carlos Sainz was on pole and for a little while looked like maybe he could win the race. Does Ferrari understand? Is Ferrari any closer to understanding why that car performed compared to Red Bull understanding why theirs didn't? Uh, I think they are actually. I think they um, make quite a big breakthrough in Monza. Um, funnily enough, yeah, completely different aero package as you mentioned. Uh, in uh, Monza, of course, it's very uh, skinny rear wings and uh, low downforce. And in Singapore, you want as much wing as possible. Uh, now, as you say, um, other high downforce tracks, Ferrari have struggled with uh, instability in the car. The drivers um, have really kind of um, yeah struggled with the rear end. Sandfort was very clear example of that. But again, Zanfort is those long sweeping corners. A lot of time for the car to kind of get into the corner, sit on its tires, rest, things to go wrong. In uh, in Singapore, it is slightly different. And also the other thing which they made a bit of breakthrough uh, with in Monza was curb riding. Um, they were quite confident going into that weekend that they'd be able to um, use the curbs at Monza, which is very useful. Again, these, these cars, they have to run very stiff to maintain that aero platform to get the best uh, performance from the under floor and um and they seem to find a way to to make that work and it seemed to translate a bit into singapore as well i think i think the interesting thing is that with, with these results it's carlos science who's come out as mm. the faster driver uh, over a single lap and yeah arguably in the race uh, on on both occasions and um and that's interesting because science has, has struggled a lot and leclerc said the issue he's having is that he actually quite likes the rear end moving around but there is also a limit to that. And uh, what Ferrari have experienced this year with the rear end instability is too much for any driver, even Charles Leclerc. <laughs> so instead, they have to load the car up with quite a lot of understeer. And Leclerc just doesn't like that. It just doesn't suit his style. He can't, um, yeah, he, he basically can't get the car turned in as he likes, get it moving around as he likes. And so, um, yeah, whereas with Sainz, he seems to be quite happy to live with, with that understeer to, you know, kind of take the edge off the car as a whole and he seems to be able to get performance out of it so I I, th- I think that's the way they've gone but um, it, it's positive news for Ferrari Look, I'm, I'm not expecting it necessarily to translate to a brilliant performance at Suzuka for example but um, the fact that on two different tracks at very different ends of the downforce spectrum and and you know a street circuit and a permanent circuit for them to be competitive at both um, is it, a very good well it's very good news for Ferrari yeah, it's very interesting as well to think back at the start of the year, Fred Vassar was so adamant that because it was a quick qualifying car, it must be a quick race car somehow. There would be a way to make it so. And I, well, I don't think we're really close enough to say that it has become a competitive race car generally. 
the fact that they are unlocking it in a broader range of ways is positive, I guess. I mean, it's approximately 14 races too late, but we'll take it for now, I suppose. Let's look at the way that Carlos Sainz did win this race. Like most street circuits, so much of it is about grabbing pole position and with Red Bull racing out of the fight in Q2, uh, it was between Ferrari and Mercedes. He beat George Russell and Charles Leclerc. This is probably the second most important pole position in Formula One after Monaco in terms of difficulty overtaking. And that's kind of the strategy, isn't it? When you're approaching a race like this is just track position. There are a couple of defining moments for the race. We don't want to start with maybe the kind of understated one, which was all about Charles Leclerc and the role he played. Started on soft tyres specifically to get ahead of George Russell, which he did. And then to protect against the undercut, which he pretty much did. The safety car kind of made it a little bit redundant. But in essence, what he did was kind of sacrifice his own race for the benefit of Carlos Sainz, or the Probably the team asked him to sacrifice his own race for the benefit of Carlos Sainz. You've kind of already touched on it. Carlos is having this great run of form. What does this say about, I guess, he's standing in the team, the way they see the power balance there, and also the way that a team that has been criticised in the last 24 months, 18 months for being a little bit dysfunctional is functioning? Yeah, I think those points are, are very true. And look, there was a chance to win here uh, for arguably three teams, you know, uh, McLaren maybe as well as Mercedes and Ferrari, if things went right on the day. And so to not throw everything at it, um, w- w- yeah, you would have regretted at the end of it. And so I think um, Leclerc said he was, it was very much his decision as well to start on the softs. Uh, he knew that getting ahead of, of, of Russell at the start was, was going to be crucial to um, the chances of Ferrari victory. And he went and did it. So um, I, 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 I think it's you know it, it's good from Leclerc. I'm sure he'll hope that some point down the line uh, the favour gets repaid, and uh, I kind of feel like it will do as long as they're just going for these one-off victories here and there. Um, and then yeah, we, we do have to give Ferrari some credit because for so for so long we have criticised them, and I think rightly so on on, on most occasions. Um, but you know they, they did make some changes to uh, you know the the people at the top of the uh, of the strategy decisions on on the pit wall uh, ahead of ahead of the year, and um, you know there were some hiccups along the way, even so. But I think these things do take a bit of time to bed in, and uh, and when the opportunity was there, they grasped it. So yeah, you know it does it does require a bit of a kind of you know hat tip to Ferrari for for getting it right on the on the day when it mattered. Yeah, it's rare we get to say that. I'm very pleased that we get to say they've, they've really executed it well here. Um, driver and team, important to say. We'll touch on in, in just a moment uh, the way Carlos Sainz really ground out that victory towards the end. But Leclerc sort of fell out of contention around about lap 1920, which is when the safety car was called for Logan Sargent. Uh, the double stack, traffic in the pit lane, virtually everybody stopped. It dropped him out of victory contention Then was also dealing with some engine overheating problems, not that unusual in Singapore. But then we get to that other interesting decisive phase of the race which is George Russell second Lando Norris third and Lewis Hamilton fourth and I mean Lawrence the Mercedes team talked so much on Saturday night about this extra set of medium tyres they'd saved up and how it would definitely be a two-stop race even though everyone was saying it was going to be a one-stop race I mean I guess technically they were right for them it was a two-stop race and they kind of made it work but it was such a stalemate before that wasn't it Carlos Sainz going as slow as possible to try and grind this out until Mercedes stopped both cars for those medium tyres. And that's kind of the way Singapore tends to work, right? Like someone managing the pace, everyone kind of stuck in a pattern, everyone makes a stop around the same time and you get that result. Is it surprising we don't see more 
gambled like this that Mercedes was clearly so proud to have made? Or is it surprising perhaps that Mercedes put both cars on that gamble considering no one really seems keen on them? Well, Sainz was nailing it, wasn't he? Because he was uh, kind of measuring his pace so that the lead cars would not end up with a window behind them that they could pit into essentially and, and, and get these tyres and then try and push through. So that, that was going particularly well. And then uh, we had um, the VSE. And of course, that created the opportunity for, uh, for for Mercedes to take on the mediums, which they <laughs> treasured so much uh, <laughs> through the weekend. Um, it, it seems like they, um, yeah, they basically used a set of softs instead of a, a set of mediums at some point during practice. That left them one set of softs down going into qualifying, which could have been an issue uh, had, um, had they kind of you know messed up one of their laps, but they managed to get through it all, have two runs in Q3, as far as I could tell, and um, and then have this this new set of mediums, which, um, yeah, I mean, they were sat there, they, they'd made a big thing out of it, so any opportunity that came up, they were going to use them. And you know what? It, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, okay, if you look at the end result, maybe not, because George <laughs> Russell didn't finish, and, uh, and, and Lewis Hamilton got third when Russell was running second beforehand, and he would have almost certainly finished second had had he stayed out rather than pitted. But um, yeah, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And uh, it um, it also made for a, a thrilling race because the, the, the thing against that strategy, of course, as it played out, is that overtaking is so difficult at Singapore that um, even if you do have a, a fresh set of tyres and an advantage of about 1.7 seconds to sometimes 1.9 seconds as Russell and Hamilton were closing in on the front too, um, it, it still might not be enough to to overtake. And so, uh, yeah, I'm sure we can talk about the details of why it wasn't quite enough this time around. But um, but yeah, I think again, if you if you look at the whole race and the way that Ferrari managed it, Science managed it, you know, uh, even before we start talking about the the, the use of uh, DRS and giving DRS to, to Norris. It was it was really well done. It was is really really well raced by Ferrari. Let's look at just Mercedes before we consider Carlos Sainz uh, again in the way. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. We ground this one out because it was a really great chase. Didn't have to pass too many cars because of the VSC, so it made it relatively straightforward like that. Didn't burn up too much of those fresh mediums passing cars. Got behind Norris relatively quickly. Uh, Russell couldn't pass, yes, because Norris was in part getting the DRS from Carlos Sainz. But it did seem in this stint that Lewis Hamilton was the faster driver, probably for the fastest, the first time of the entire weekend. George Russell really had his measure. Well, he has had since the mid-season break, really, but certainly up until this point in the weekend. Given this was, as we've talked about in the context of virtually all of the teams here, 
almost kind of like, it almost feels like a non-championship race because no one's in it for anything other than just winning this race. Do you think there is reason to argue that Mercedes should have considered after a couple of laps, and admittedly there weren't that many, but a couple of laps of George Russell not getting past Lando Norris, to change it up a bit in the way that we sometimes see teams swap their drivers to see if the other driver has a better chance of overtaking, considering Hamilton looked like the quicker one then? Yeah, I, I would have been surprised. I think Hamilton looked like the quicker one because uh, because of George's position. And also, um, you know, George... George had a better weekend up to that point, um, had looked better in qualifying. Um, I think it would have been a bit harsh because the nature of trying to overtake at Singapore isn't like, right, have a couple of goes at it, see what happens. It's, you know, lap after lap, find the weaknesses, try and probe here, try and probe there, uh, try and get somebody offline into into one corner or, or get them to use up too much tyres or too much battery into, into another part of the circuit. So I think sw- swapping it, I'm not sure it would have it would have ended up in in, in any different uh, a, a result, and I think it probably would have been um, pretty controversial as well. I'm, I'm sure George, um, you know, he may have had more points at the end of the race uh, because of it, but I don't think he would have been uh, happier. So um, no, I, I think they did the right thing, and I'm not I'm not 100 convinced that Lewis was exceptionally faster than George on on that on those set of mediums at the end. It definitely would have been controversial. Uh, maybe it would have shaken things up. I don't know. And look, you say he wouldn't have been happier at the end, George Russell, but in this hypothetical, he wouldn't have known how unhappy he was <laughs> That's right. to have hit the wall. <laughs> That's right. So he might have balanced out for him in the end. He did hit the wall. A somewhat unusual crash, but I guess that really speaks to the focus required in Singapore. You know, I think this is one of the, the only races almost left on the calendar when the drivers really looked properly finished when they get out of the car and this is even on the shorter side for Singapore Grand Prix because the track has changed normally we get pretty close if not up to the two hour mark and you know it was really interesting to hear George talk afterwards about he didn't even it was such a brief lapse of concentration that he didn't even have time to register that he'd lapped con- lapsed concentration before he was in to the wall um, but that was just the nature of the way he was following Lando Norris and I guess that's partly because of this DRS train that had been formed which was all uh, Carlos Sainz. You know, we've praised a little bit Ferrari strategists here and deservedly so, but I did like that even in this context, Carlos Sainz was still telling them how he was going to win this race. We don't often see this kind of, I guess, uh, obvious tactics being played by drivers, do we? This feels like the most clear example of racecraft, like the most obvious example of racecraft you can think of that that's not so subtle in the way we we normally praise drivers for. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, we've seen kind of DRS battles in in slightly different ways. Say in in Saudi Arabia, um, twenty twenty two versus, uh, sorry, Leclerc versus Verstappen, and trying to be the the last driver o- over the detection point to make sure mm. you get the DRS into the next straight, knowing that that's the best chance to keep the position. So we we, we do see drivers play around with it a bit, but. Um, yeah, to to basically create a, a DRS train, especially when you're you're, you're leading the race, um, is is a bit rare because you know it's a fine balance. One small mistake by science, and uh, Norris could have had a could have had a look in uh, with, with DRS. You know, one poor exit, too much wheel spin. Um, you know, or going deep into a corner, and then and then if there's DRS on the next straight, uh, that could have been uh, game over for science in terms of the victory. So, um, it, it, you know, it, it was a brave. And kind of very measured uh, thing that he did, but also um, he was very aware of the situation and, and the fact that the Mercedes coming through would have that much more performance from the fresh tires. That it's exactly what he needed to do. He had to. He had to do this. He had to uh, have it. Have it play out like this. And um, and and Lando, I think, was 
in in a way just quite grateful to have the DRS to be able to hold <laughs> on second. If you listen to what he said afterwards, you know he wasn't really thinking about um, attacking for. Uh, for, for for the victory in the final laps, of course, if if Science had made a mistake, he would have gone for it. But you know, he was really thinking about how he could keep the the Mercedes behind. So um, yeah, it's that interesting thing where uh, you know it's it's almost like a a kind of a game of what well, if it if it's logical for the person in second place to just try and defend because you know that that that's the the biggest threat rather than trying to attack, then uh, then give them the DRS to help. So yeah, uh, fantastic. But um, I I, I think it, it does also show you uh, one you know we know all these drivers are, are, are very smart. Um, you know they've raced since they're very young, not with DRS, but you know they they have raced for for, for a very long time, so they know all the tricks in the book. But yeah, to be able to do that and then execute it at that level with all that pressure. Uh, you know, uh, Ferrari's only chance, arguably, of a victory this year. It, it, it was it, it was impressive stuff from Sainz. I'm curious what you think about, in the context of Carlos Sainz having this great period of this season, and a pretty great season overall, it's got to be said. This is his third year at Ferrari, and sort of been a little bit up and down. First season was pretty close. Last year felt more like Charles Leclerc, certainly for a fairly brief period of time, admittedly, but it was Charles who was the title contender for Ferrari. And there's this mean talk about, I think from John Elkin, in fact, saying that, well, you know, Charles Leclerc's the guy we're going to intend to build a team around. Is it, and I, I always hesitate to use the word underrated because I feel like the more you use it, the less inherently the person must be underrated because you keep talking about how underrated they are. But what does this say about Carlos Sainz's standing at this point, I guess? Because I couldn't help but think that for all of Charles Leclerc's speed, and arguably is the quickest qualifier in Formula 1, when he's got the tools at his disposal anyway, one of the really rapid guys, I sort of struggle to imagine Charles pulling off a strategy like this or a tactic like this. I don't know. That's just sort of my thoughts. What do you What do you think? I think he could have. I mean, yeah, in this kind of race, where, when you've got a, a lead like Sainz had, arguably you'd rather have Sainz defending it than, than the clerk, you know, perhaps a little less error prone. He's he, he's shown on a number of occasions that he's, he's very good at soaking up pressure when he's when he's under it. But um, yeah, I, I think the thing for Leclerc at the moment, the concerning thing is that Carlos has all of a sudden found the pace uh, in, in qualifying to start beating him. And um, that was always Leclerc's, you know, uh, like ace in, that he had was that he could just pull out these phenomenal qualifying laps. And again, I think it just comes down to what Ferrari have had to do with this car setup wise to, to make it drivable. And um, whilst, uh, you know, Leclerc can get close, he, he can't quite get to, to, to his full extent. And um, but, but the problem with Leclerc as well is that when we do see him absolutely on it, rear of the car sliding around and um, pushing super hard he can still make mistakes you know look back to Miami qualifying as an example you know it, it does happen that, that when the car is is unstable he he can have a tendency to throw it in the wall so I, I think for Leclerc it, you know it's going to take a bit of um, a bit of soul searching now to, to figure out right how do I get back ahead of Carlos with the car that we have especially if I mean, Ferrari talking about changing the concept quite a lot going into into next year and and kind of starting from scratch to some extent. But you know, if it's still a a part of of, of this uh, generation of cars that they need to build in this this understeer to to, to make it work with, with with how they end up design the car, then um, yeah, that's something that the clerk's going to have to figure out and drive around and. And, and get used to, but yeah. To, to go back to your original point, I, I do feel that um, it's much more instinct, instinctive when when uh, when the clerk is is driving. It's very much kind of reacting to, to things as it happen, whereas science is a bit more um, methodical in, in his approach. So, yeah, 
Given the situation they had, I think uh, that they wouldn't have been too disappointed that it was it was Sainz in in that league car instead of Leclerc. Which, as you say, compared to some of the um, some some of the comments from the very top over the years uh, over which driver is 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 seen more as Ferrari's future um, is is very good news for Sainz and um, especially as he's going into kind of negotiation contracts in the next year or so. Yeah, and they say they want those deals done end of the year, more or less. Well, it's a great time to be coming into some great form for Carlos Sainz. To have won a race, uh, converted his second pole position, being unable to do it at Monza. Let's talk now about the drivers well, that he did beat but weren't really in the fight, and they were the Red Bull Racing drivers. The first time that's happened, obviously, this year. First time it's really happened in a very long time. Even Brazil last year, when they were out of the podium fight, it was really due to incidents rather than just lacking pace in this way. So it's been a very long time since they've been beaten on merit. Never really even turned up, in a sense. Both out in Q2, uh, more than seven-tenths of a second, ended up being more than a second to the ultimate pole time set by Carlos Sainz. It is a remarkable turnaround from where they've been at virtually every other race this year. We've talked a little bit about, about why this track is a bit unusual, can throw some curveballs, but... Do you get the sense at the end of this weekend that Red Bull really fully understands where the car went wrong? Because we were sort of both listening to Christian Horner and, and Paul Monahan and they sort of said often that they knew what it was, but never really wanted to say what it was. No, I think they were quite keen to to guard exact, exactly what was wrong with it because it it's a clear weakness on the car and, and, and something that perhaps rivals could... Uh, you know, it, it's just it's just knowledge which they've got no advantage to put out there. It's uh, it's, it's much better if they if they keep it in house. So um, I, I think they do know roughly what they did wrong, but that's not to say that if they ran the weekend again, Verstappen would be on pole and you know twenty seconds down the road. I, I think the nature of that circuit just did not suit the car to some extent, and then they made setup issues. Uh, sorry, setup mistakes along along the way that led to issues with the car. Uh, Verstappen said, especially under braking, you know, he's just really struggling to get. Uh, the front end turned in. And it was interesting as well listening to Lando Norris saying that he watched an onboard of Verstappen's lap and was laughing because <laughs> the car looked because the car looked worse than pretty much any car he had seen that year, uh, which is saying something, you know, I mean, it, it, it's all relative, isn't it? it? I think it's worse compared to, to where you expect that car to be. But even so, um, yeah, to have, uh, yeah, to have another driver from a different team look at the onboard and immediately notice how much Verstappen was struggling. And, you know, of course, we talk about Verstappen, you know, one of the greatest drivers of his generation, if not the greatest driver of his generation, uh, unable to, um, to get into Q3. Uh, that's significant. And yeah, it's, it, it is surprising. It is very, very surprising because you consider the advantage they've had at other, other racetracks. But it seems like they got a little bit lost along the way. They brought a new floor to the car, uh, which they ran on Friday, and then they took it off on Saturday. Not so much because they felt that was the actual issue. They just wanted to eliminate some of the variables they had to try and focus in on, on what the problem was in that final practice session, but still didn't really uh, find an answer. And so, um, yeah, it seems that uh, they kind of got led astray a bit by their by their simulations. You know, the simulator work going into the weekend that left them with a setup that that just wasn't um, anywhere near where they needed to be. And then they just never really got round to, to finding out what the issue is. And and as is always the case, um, it, it seemed that they were much happier with the car in the race than qualifying. We we've seen that to obviously a less exaggerated extent at other races, where. The car, um, you know, it can be a very close qualifying session, but then Max will just go and dominate the race. Um, I think they again saw a similar, a similar trend, but they uh, the strategy they were on meant that there was 
really, as soon as that safety car came out early on, they were screwed because they were hard tyres looking to go long in, in the hope that uh, something would happen either earlier in the race or later in the race to, to allow them to, to, to make use of of that strategy gamble and and really as christian horner said on sunday that the safety car happened at the worst possible time <laughs> according to their strategy planner and so from that point onwards that they were in trouble uh, but the interesting thing that he did say was that while they didn't think going into the race that they thought they had any chance of winning it and um, when they saw science backing up the science and leclerc backing up the pack early in the race in that first stint where remember leclerc was told um you know leave a five second gap to charles back everyone up uh, that was actually keeping Max in the race because even though he couldn't get uh, get get past certain cars, he managed to get past the Hasses, but then kind of got stuck a bit. Um, he he was still kind of in contention uh, if safety car had fallen at the right time for them. Uh, perhaps you know after everybody else had pitted and they were going longer, and then a safety car came, then that could have put him right in the mix. And and then they felt even with all the problems they had that weekend, the car in the race was kind of benign enough and 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 drivable enough that perhaps they would have had a shot of victory. It was exactly the wrong time for them. You could see that at the safety car resumption on those old tyres, completely defenseless. I can't even remember the last time in any context a Red Bull car has moved backwards so rapidly as it did after that resumption. Saw them much quicker on fresh mediums at the end. They kind of had to stick to that strategy and hope for some kind of event to save them. In the end, they stopped actually only three or four laps before the virtual safety car that Mercedes stopped behind, but by then they were losing so much time they had to pull the trigger. Interesting, though, that if you compare the medium times between, for example, George Russell and Max Verstappen, still not... I mean, as you say, while Red Bull Racing's race times were improved, still not to the level we would expect. It's not as if they were race-winning times, even if Christian Horner says that, well, you know, without that safety car actually the times might have seen him ride in it and ride in, in the thick of it it's kind of interesting too isn't it because it's the first time i can think that red bulls i mean obviously this uh, this track may end up just being such a massive outlier but has turned up to a track seemingly with the wrong setup and normally team setups are sort of 90 to 95 percent complete through the simulator by the time the rocket up a track and then have a part that while it may not have been the problem they weren't convinced wasn't the problem to take it off it felt like the most uncertain I've seen Red Bull in a long time. And I mean, can that really just all be down to the track? Or is that just the natural self-doubt that comes into engineers when things are not working out? Yeah, I, I, I think it, I think it, I think it is, look, it is the track is, is the obvious underlying issue here. And, um, and probably the, where they're able to run, run the ride height, maybe because of the nature of the circuit, bumps in certain places they had to take it out of where they're, they're, they're used to running it and then these cars are so sensitive that as soon as you start to do that you know certain uh, elements of, of the aero package don't work with others and um and it, it can all fall apart the interesting thing is that uh, most other circuits and re really since the start of of these regulations Red Bull will probably have one of the widest setup windows where, where they can adapt it to most things. And, you know, we've seen them run at relatively high ride heights and still have performance as well. So um, I, th that's what I don't fully understand. And and that's the thing that, you know, that they, they weren't willing to go into any detail on it is exactly why this kind of combination of corners and track surface and, and whatever it was was fighting against them um you know and it seemed like they just had a number of things going wrong as well they had a, a clutch issue uh going into qualifying um max stappen made a, a big thing about it in 
uh, final practice because it was resulting in these, these very jolty upshifts and uh, a lot of wheel spin. So it seemed like they were fighting fires on, on several fronts. And and so just, you know, trying to get the car to run as it should do uh, was a problem. And um, and and then trying to refine the setup was just it just seemed like a, a step too far within the three practice sessions they had to to nail it. It is. Things can go wrong so quickly in Formula 1, especially when only one practice session, I guess, is at night. Always a complicating factor in Singapore. But it means we got the first non-Red Bull racing win of the year. A genuinely interesting race and a hard-fought one. I'm glad at least if Red Bull's streak is not going to continue, that it wasn't by default. And we got a a real race for it and everyone's better off for that, I think. And uh, I suppose, Lawrence, is it going to be a Red Bull win by 20 seconds this weekend? Are we just going to be back straight to to regular programming? Uh, I think it is. And it if it isn't, then we've got a real story and, and something interesting on our, on our hands. Because, of course, there, there was a temptation to look at the technical directive that came in uh, prior to this weekend and try and link that to Red Bull's performance. E- even Red Bull's fiercest rivals, so like of Mercedes, were, were a bit reluctant to, uh, to to suggest that might be the case. And uh, so I think everyone will be looking at uh, FP1 in Suzuka, seeing where the Red Bull is. I suspect it will be back to business as usual with, with, with the Red Bull nicely ahead. It's certainly a kind of track that, uh, based on what we've seen at, at other circuits this year and, and the knowledge we have of that car, should suit it. So, yeah, I'm, I, I don't think we're going to get many of these um, non-Red Bull uh, uh, weekends going forward. But it does feel as though over you know the second half of the season, as Red Bull has quite clearly put um, their effort and their resources and their limited aerodynamic testing uh, time into next year's car that perhaps, um, yeah, the likes of uh, Ferrari, McLaren, Mercedes have closed the gap slightly. So um, I- I'm optimistic that at some point we might at least get another exciting qualifying session or something <laughs> along those lines. But, but I, could get, get, I, I, I would warn against uh, hoping too much for but for another non-Red Bull victory before the end of the year. Yeah, a couple of close practice sessions and everyone will just be happy, <laughs> yeah. I think. Uh, that was the Singapore Grand Prix. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining me to wrap it up. Thank you, Michael. This was a statement drive from Carlos Sainz. Quick in qualifying, controlled at the race start, and clever at the finish, it was indicative of the form turnaround he's enjoying in 2023. But he likely won't have long to enjoy it, because there's little sign this is anything other than a temporary setback for Red Bull Racing. Thanks very much to Lawrence Edmondson for joining me to debrief the Singapore Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll be back next week for the Japanese Grand Prix. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. 
Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview. And Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. <laughs>